This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Let's do a little one-syllable chant just to kind of recollect the energy after the social time. Um, and the, the one-syllable chant is a seed syllable in Sanskrit that's considered the, the syllable that represents great wisdom um, because it's the, the syllable, seed syllable ah, um, it's the sound of opening or letting go, um, receiving. Um, so let's just sing ah for a little bit and then sit for half a minute or so in the stillness afterward. Ah, and add harmony. Ah, 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 did it, didn't it? That was nice. And I'm not sure which I like better, the harmony, which gets very sweet, or the silence afterward. So here you come Monday night into this beautiful temple, and um, I'd like to speak about the quality of equanimity. Um, I've just come back from travels in Asia, Japan and in Dharamsala, India, being part of the mind life science meetings with the Dalai Lama and various scientists and social scientists from around the world. This one focused on education and social and emotional learning. Um, And the Dalai Lama, through the days we were together for a good part of a week, 
um, kept his focus on, all right, we have good science about these things now. How do we change the world? How do we change the world? How do we make the world better for our children, for adults, for people who are vulnerable? Over and over again, what's best for the world? How do we use this? And then when we had a chance to talk together a little bit privately, a little bit of Dharma conversation, he said, now when you teach, he said, you must emphasize cessation. And then he went on to explain what he meant by that. In the Buddhist teachings of the four basic truths or noble truths, there's suffering and its causes, and then there's an end to it. Basically, then he went on to say, you must teach people that there's freedom um, and goodness that's possible for each of them and for this world, that that's what's possible. When greed, hatred, and delusion are released and given up, it says in the Buddhist text, we no longer cause sorrow for ourselves and others. This is nirvana. Or Zen Master Suzuki Roshi who said... um, when you realize the fact that everything changes, does, you know, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your, find your composure in the midst of it, this is the gateway to nirvana or to well-being or to peace. So this is what the Dalai Lama was kind of urging, saying remind people what's possible, how it is possible to live. And this is also the last of the series of ten talks on the qualities of the awakened heart, equanimity or peace. And they're the qualities of the awakened heart because they're not found someplace else. You don't have to go to the Himalayas or, you know, to Kyoto in Japan. Um, They're the nature of the heart and mind itself. Luminous is this mind, it says in the Buddhist teachings, but it gets confused by the various thoughts and feelings that color it. But when we see them, when we see them arise, it's sort of like the leaves fluttering on a tree when the wind comes up. We think that everything's moving, but actually the tree is still there and the leaves flutter and then they quiet down again. And our fundamental state is peaceful. It just gets bothered by stuff, you know, life and the 24-hour news cycle and the people in your family, you know, and money problems and work and all of those things. And yet, underneath it all, there is a there's a substrate of stillness and an understanding and a sense that you have when I ask that question, you know, how would it be to live with a peaceful heart? Most people in the room, I couldn't see you all, but I could see some of your thoughts were like, "Mm, yeah, pretty good idea. Actually, it would help. And so what you also could see in that brief meditation on equanimity is that we can be reminded, we can invite, we can turn towards certain qualities, whether it's compassion or loving kindness, you know, or respect for one another, understanding, Um, And when we turn toward them, the mind is malleable. It's pliant. And when we turn our consciousness or our attention in a particular direction, that's what flowers. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you water certain seeds, then they blossom. And if you water the seeds of peace, 
guess what? They grow or you feel them come alive. And if you water the seeds of resentment or disappointment or something, those too will grow. Unfortunately, you've noticed that. So Dharma, which is a very complex or um, multi-meaning word in Sanskrit, means the teachings, it means the truth or the law, it means one's particular destiny. It has all these meanings. But here in the temple, um, the Dharma teachings are the teachings of the way things are, the kind of fundamental universal truth to help us live wisely. And equanimity grows when we have a vast perspective. It's in certain ways the culmination of the practices of a spiritual life. And uh, Zen Master Ryokan, the beloved, most beloved poet of Japan, writes, if someone asks me what is the mark of enlightenment or illusion, I cannot say. Wealth and honor are nothing but dust. As evening falls, I sit in my hermitage and stretch out both feet in answer. There's a kind of ease and relaxation. Wealth and honor, these things come and go. But if you want to know about a peaceful heart, stretch out your feet. Notice the changing of the light. We've gone from that beautiful green landscape through the um, twilight and now into spring evening darkness. And find in yourself a way to rest in the midst of all things. Now it's also true, well here's another early Buddhist text. Some children were playing beside a river. They made castles of sand. Each child defended their castle and said, this one is mine, and they kept them separate and wouldn't let any mistakes about whose was whose. And when they were finished, sometimes they visited, but sometimes they fought. One owner of one castle got angry and pulled the other child's hair and you spoiled my castle, you know, and they all kind of ganged up on one child and then he found other friends and we know how human beings are, it says in here. Um, But then evening came, it was getting dark and they all thought it was time to go home. Their mothers were calling them and no one cared what became of their castle. One child stamped on his, the waves washed over another and they turned away and they all went back home. So that is um, an ancient Buddhist text. (laughs) And it's somehow written to remind us of something if you hadn't noticed. And that is that the things that make up our life and that matter and that we can care about, they don't last. And you have many incarnations. I think about my early childhood and my middle school and time that I lived as a monk and, you know... When I first got married, and um, all those things are gone. And the houses I lived in are gone. Some of them were torn down. I could go back. They don't even exist anymore. That whole thing just disappeared. And then at some point, I'll be gone, right? And people who knew me will remember me. Oh, yes, a little sadness, right? I'll miss them. And then they'll be gone. And then, okay, boop, it's gone. It's what happens. It's the sandcastle thing, you know? It's really, really true. So then, how do we live? 
what's wise? There are the worldly winds. There's praise and blame and gain and loss and fame and disrepute and pleasure and pain. And I guess it says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for planting and a time for sowing and reaping and birth and death and all. There's a time for every season and it keeps changing, doesn't it? I mean, let's get real about it. (coughs) Praise and blame. So what do we do? You know? Chuang Tzu, the Taoist sage, says, if a person is crossing the river and a boat collides with their skiff, they will start shouting and become angry, and all because there's somebody in the other boat. But if an empty boat came down the river and collided with their skiff, they would not be shouting and they would not be angry. Said, if you empty your boat as you cross the river over the world, if you don't kind of hold on to things, if you empty your boat, then no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. He's really talking about an inner state of a peaceful heart, of not Um, not creating conflict with the way things are. And this is going to be a tough talk a little bit, only because there are a lot of things in the world that need attention and need to be changed. And there's no way in which what I'm saying um, denies that or wouldn't celebrate and doesn't celebrate our need to do that. But how do we do it? And where do we come from? And how do we actually live in this changing world? And if you listen and pay attention, there is an innate capacity that you have to breathe, to relax, to open, to let go, to see all the views that your mind has, even as you did that equanimity meditation, you know, the mind has no pride, and it came up with all kinds of other things for you to be doing, right? And it didn't want to let go of your worries and your tragedies and your longings and all of that. It's, yeah, yeah, but remember me. Don't be get so peaceful yet. I've got things to tell you, you know, and people to be opposed to and blame and love and seduce and whatever, all the things that it said. Um, but you also can feel that there's a capacity that's bigger than just the storytelling mind um, to open and let go, and amidst all of that, to come to a place of rest or peace or trust amidst the changing seasons. Um, And then there comes a sense of grace, not because everything, you know, will go the way you want it to. You know, there's still warfare and racism and environmental destruction and things that we have to tend to, but there's also a bigger story As Dr. Martin Luther King said, you know, the arc of the moral universe may be long, but it bends toward justice. Um, And we, we can also sense the truth of that. And I remember when I was working in the Cambodian refugee camps many years ago, um, here was the dry, barren, hot, you know, it was the hot season, flat, place with a big pit well at one end that people would walk into their buckets and everybody had a little tiny hut 
that was made of bamboo, 50 or 100,000 people in each camp, um, made of woven bamboo, maybe six feet wide and eight feet long with a little door and some cloth hung over the door. Um, and the path coming in and next to the door, there was a little plot of land, maybe one square yard, one square meter, that was next to the door path. And then the next huts and the little paths between them. And after a month or two, almost everybody in their huts had planted a garden. They'd, they'd lost everything. People in their families had been killed, their villages burned. There they were, they had nothing. And there was a little squash plant and a bean plant and pepper plant and stuff. And they would go every day and stand, stand in the hot sun in these long lines and get the water and tend their plants. And it was a kind of extraordinary thing to watch. But that there's something in life itself that will renew itself. It wants to. It's its nature. And it's possible to begin to trust in that way. So equanimity doesn't mean indifference. And that's called the near enemy to equanimity. It masquerades as it. But indifference is fear or withdrawal, you know, insulation. I don't want life to touch me. Equanimity is the willingness to be in life, but to be spacious and open to have a vast perspective and say yes here I am showing up caring loving but I'm not I'm not in control of this game and I hope you've noticed that <laughs> and so there's less like Zhuang Su's there's less person in the boat me mine the way it should be you know and it's not that there won't be self-consciousness and you know, the small sense of self and the body of fear and all those things that arise as part of our nature. But it's almost like, oh yeah, there's that. That's the personality. That's okay. Um, but it's not the real story. And you discover through your meditation practice, those of you who have a meditation practice or your, your inner spiritual life, the capacity of your heart to move with all things, to embrace the mystery, the, the changing mystery of life. And it is a mystery. Nobody knows, I mean, who are you really? How did you get here? How did all the stars and planets, I mean, come on. <laughs> Nobody has the answer to that. It says in one of the Buddhist texts, uh, Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. It appears, and it's mysterious that it appears, and then it's gone. You remember Y2K, right? What happened to it, you know? It's back with the pharaohs, and it's back with, um, I don't know, um... Yeah, it's back with, um, I was, I love Lucy and, you know, <clears throat> and the Middle Ages. It goes back into wherever it came from, to emptiness. And another day says, all right, here we're going to have another day. Um, but things appear and then they disappear. And we know intuitively that there is a way to find balance. My teacher Ajahn Chah said, in almost all his teachings, 
he didn't really teach anybody anything. He just said if they were falling off of the, the, the road on one side, he'd said, go that way, go back to the middle. <laughs> if they were falling off the left-hand side, he said, go back that way. He said, that's all I do. People get attached here, they get afraid there. I said, come back, be here in the present. And as you are, be here with a, with a loving awareness of this life because it's all you have. This is it. And this, just as you know how to ride a bike, you know, you learn it, and when you learn it, you know that balance. There's a kind of inner learning of balance. And then gradually you learn to trust. You know, you don't need your bike just to be on a really flat, simple place. You can take it places. Um, And then when difficulty comes, you have this capacity. This from Zen Master Suzuki Roshi. He says, suppose your children are suffering from a hopeless disease. You don't know what to do. You can't lie in bed normally. The most comfortable place for you would be a warm, comfortable bed. But now, because of your mental agony, you cannot rest. You may walk up and down, pace in and out, but this doesn't help. Actually, the best way to relieve your mental suffering is to sit in meditation, even in such a confused state of mind and with a bad posture. If you have no experience of sitting in this kind of difficult situation, you're not yet a real meditation student. For no other activity can appease your suffering. In continuous practice under a succession of agreeable and disagreeable situations, you will realize the marrow of meditation and acquire its true strength. So it's not saying that you won't have gain and loss and pleasure and pain and birth and death. You will have it. Anybody not have it? You can have your $15 back, right? (laughs) It's just how it is. But... We can sit with a kind of loving awareness, a sacred attention that says this is life. This is life with its unbearable beauty and its ocean of tears that make up our human incarnation. And So there's Suzuki Roshi. I think about Rosa Parks because I love reading about her, you know, and she'd actually planned that for a while. And I remember seeing a big picture of her, this kind of luminous being. Now she knew how to sit. <laughs> She said, I just knew I had to sit there and not get up. <laughs> she could come here. We want her on our faculty, right? I knew I just had to stay on the bus, you know. And there's something in that of the courage of heart that comes uh, in a peaceful heart to say, yes, I'm peaceful, and yes, I'm here. I really know what it means to be alive and present. So... Part of it is, you know, the the great gift of having a bigger perspective. That the arc of the moral universe is long, it bends toward justice, that life will renew itself. And even when terrible things happen, the, the little plants in the gardens in the refugee camp, something will renew itself. It's not the end of the story. And the other is a kind of common humanity. The fact is that we all suffer as well as have beautiful, delicious, wonderful things in our life. But everybody also experiences suffering and loss and aging and sickness and things like that, don't they? Right? Don't you? 
don't we? Moi aussi, right? And we also survive. And we have a kind of courage and ability um, that we share as human beings to go through what's beautiful and what's difficult. And that's our journey. And it's not a mistake, you know, and you're not bad because you suffer. You didn't do something wrong. It's just, you know, you took the ticket for the human incarnation ride at Disneyland. And it says, beautiful joy and great suffering. You want one? Well, okay, you got a body. Here you are. You know, that's how it works. So you start to see the commonality of this. And the transformation of our life then comes from our ability to be present for it as it is, which is what meditation teaches us, that Suzuki Roshi's phrase, the marrow of meditation. Because it's not about some particular state, it's the capacity to be present for life with loving awareness for what it is. This from William Butler Yeats, who says, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us so that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. It's a kind of amazing passage. Yeats was an extraordinary poet saying, if we can be present and you know it when people are really in the midst of suffering or when you have the privilege of being with somebody who's dying, You know, you can't fix that one if they're dying. You can't change it. But if you can be present for it, the the stillness and the presence you have allows what needs to happen, the the last words that haven't been spoken, the feelings that need to be felt um, in that circumstance or in other ones because you're actually there for it. You're not trying to fix it or change it. You're actually present. And that's part of the gift of equanimity. It untangles, it cleanses, it purifies, it brings a certain balance. And even in a moment, it can change everything. I mean, there you are, should it happen, that you're in an argument with your lover or your spouse or your partner or whoever it happens to be, if you have one. And if you don't, you'll find someone else to argue with. It's okay, (laughs) right? And then there's a little voice in the back that says, we're really in it, aren't we? You know, you know that voice? God, we really got into it this time. And that little voice says, hmm, pretty interesting. We're in the drama now. We're really in it, you know. And even that little voice, that moment, it's like a pause that says, well, this is part of our human life, but it's not all of who we are. It's just, you know, part of what we do. We, we also get in conflict sometimes. And then there's a breath that comes. You take a bigger breath and you say, yeah, are you okay in this? Here we are having a conflict. Is it all right? I mean, conflict isn't a bad thing, you know. We have different desires and needs and things. It depends how we handle it, unfortunately. How do we say this? You know, in kindergarten, and there was that beautiful little five-year-old Zoe who came up. Many of you saw her in her sparkly pink dress with the flowers on it. She'd come for a baby blessing five years ago, and now I get to see her dancing around. In kindergarten, which Zoe, I asked her if she was in school, she said, yes, I am in kindergarten. She really wanted me to know the particulars. Um, If kids start hitting each other with blocks, which they do in preschool and kindergarten, the teacher will say something very simple like, use your words, right? 
couldn't we do that on a national level? <laughs> An international level? I mean, as a species, it's not that complicated. <laughs> so there's something in us that knows that it's possible to step back and say, well, we're really caught in it and that we don't have to be so caught in it. In some moment we can say, ah, oh, yes. And we can begin to trust that. Trust not so much your plans and ideals and goals and things to figure out, because you know, um, and I love the work of Byron Katie, some of you may know her, she invites people to question their thoughts. Whatever view or story you have, first of all, there's another story about it. You know, it's one perspective. But she'll say, what if that thought weren't true? How would it be for you, you know? How's it working for you to keep attached to that thought? Or even more, what if its opposite were true? You think, how could ever that be, you know? But we have ideas about things, and yet they may turn out somewhat differently than we imagine. So holding them lightly is actually um, a really good thing. In Zen, they say, today's satori is tomorrow's mistake, right? You have a great revelation, but then how about the next day? And equanimity is an invitation somehow again to a place of trust, of something much larger. Um, there's a passage that I love um, that I think also is important in, in kind of our national and cultural conversation. And this comes from Mothering Magazine, from Peggy O'Mara, who was the editor. Um, and she writes, we have a cultural bias against dependency, against any emotion or behavior that indicates weakness. This is tragically evident in the way we push our children. We establish standards more important than their inner experiences. Um, when we wean our children rather than trusting, they'll wean themselves. When we insist that they sit at the table and finish their meals, rather than trusting they will eat well if healthful food is provided. When we toilet train them at an early age, rather than trusting they will learn to use the toilet and not be wearing diapers in high school. <laughs> it is the nature of the child to be dependent, and it is the nature of dependence to be outgrown. Dependence, insecurity, and weakness are natural states for a child, for all of us. But just as we grow from crawling to walking, babbling to talking, puberty to sexuality, from weakness to strength, uncertain to mastery, begrudging dependency because it's not independence is like begrudging winter because it's not yet spring. Dependency blossoms into, depend into independence in its own sweet time. And that's a, that's, a, that's a wisdom for child rearing, but it's a deeper wisdom as well. Um, you know, if we live in a cowboy culture, I'm completely independent, and, you know, I can take care of myself. You're not. You're vulnerable. Every time you drive down the street that other people stay on the right side, and every time you go through a traffic light that people stop at the red and let you go through the green. You know, and you're vulnerable every time you use money that people will believe that that little piece of paper is actually worth something. You know, that's an agreement. Um, and you're vulnerable, as I say, we sit here and breathe and relax and open this amazing thing, our body breathes, 
And the, the, the breath we take was breathed by the other people in the room, for sure, you know, and the deer in the hillside, and I saw a badger here once. It was really great, and coyotes and mountain lions. But it comes across the Pacific, and it dusted Mauna Loa and Mauna Kea, and it dusted Fukushima nuclear reactor. It did. You know, we are in it together. And so the whole idea that you're independent is a fiction. You are life expressing itself in a particular form. And life apparently approves of you because you're still here, right? (laughs) And all your ancestors who are survivors are kind of at your back rooting you on. They say, yep, you can do it. We did it. We went through this and you can do this as well. And when we stop, even for a moment, when we meditate, when we take a walk in the hills, when we quiet ourselves, we can sense that there's a vast stillness that we long for amidst the clamor of the culture, a huge silence which contains everything, the turning of the stars and the seasons and birth and death and the joy and sorrow people around us, the mystery of life. It's not far away. It's here in any minute, in any moment. And equanimity is is an invitation in the yogic tradition. It's the opening of the crown chakra where you sit and the crown chakra opens and you feel the turning of the seasons and the stars with each breath. This is a, another Buddhist text <clears throat> where the Buddha is speaking. I consider the position of kings and rulers as that of dust motes in a sunbeam. I see the greatest treasures of gold and gems as but broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds and the great Indian Ocean as drops of mud that soil one's feet. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians and look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of dragons and the rise and fall of beliefs as traces left by the four seasons. So it's poetic. It's beautiful poetry. Traces left by the four seasons and the serpentine dance There's a stillness in you that is beckoning you, that is saying, yes, you can live from this place. And meditation and spiritual life really is a reminder of this, that all these things are turning in civilizations, the Sumerian and the Hittites and the, you know, Ottoman Empire. Remember the British Empire? When I was young, that was a big empire. But, you know, easy come, easy go, or whatever. The Portuguese Empire, wow, right. The Chinese empires, the empires, the Mayan and the Aztec and the Incan and so forth. But who are we? You know, if we grasp and hold on, then it's like rope burn, right? It's changing and you're trying to hold on to it. Um, But with loving awareness, which is what you are, you're really the witness of it all. When you get quiet, then you come back to rest 
in the silent mind, which we could call loving awareness, the awareness of this dance, just as you can step out of a conflict and say, hmm, caught in that. There's a place of stillness in us that's outside of time. Thich Nhat Hanh, who writes, This body is not me. I'm not limited to this body. I'm life without boundaries. I've never been born, and I've never died. Since before time, I've been free. Birth and death are only doors through which we pass, sacred thresholds on our journey. Birth and death are a game of hide-and-seek. So laugh with me, hold my hand, let us say goodbye to meet again soon. We will meet today and again tomorrow in every moment, for we are life meeting itself. He's a pretty deep cat. (laughs) And he's pointing to a truth and a reality that who you are is spirit. You're not this body. I mean, I hope not anyway. Kale and, you know, Big Macs or whatever it is, that's just not who you are, you know? And you're not your feelings, because they're always changing, right? And God knows you're not your thoughts. I mean, because they contradict one another, as Whitman says. Yeah, I am large, I contain multitudes, but... So what are you? Spirit was born into this body consciousness and it will leave in that mysterious moment of death. You are awareness itself. You are loving awareness that's having this human experience. And to meditate isn't to have some particular, okay, now I've got it and I'm quiet and I've had some great insight. Those come. But it's really to remember who you are. This vastness and spaciousness and stillness. Hmm. And when you do, there comes a possibility of a kind of vast perspective and freedom. Here's Mahatma Gandhi, who says, I believe in the unity of all things, and therefore I believe that if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent, and if one person gains, the whole world is uplifted by that. We each have our, we each have our place to contribute and then he goes on and when I despair I remember that all through history the way of truth and love has always won yes there have been murderers and tyrants and for a time they can seem invincible but in the end they always fall think of it always in the end they always fall think of it always and there's like those plants the squash and the beans and the little gardens in the refugee camp, life wants to renew itself. And we're asked to participate in this mystery, not from a place of contraction and fear. All that comes, okay, you can notice that with loving awareness. But from a place of a a deeper care and a deeper trust. So when I came back from being with my beloved Trudy. We were traveling together in, in uh, as I said, in Kyoto and then Dharamsala. I came back to do some teaching in Washington, D.C. for a big conference of 4,000 therapists. 
which they need in D.C. very badly right now. <clears throat> and um, the day after I did my keynote address and whatever <clears throat> was the day of March for Our Lives. So I went out on Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, you know, as because um, it matters to me. And I've been out demonstrating in all kinds of ways because they matter. And one of the things that was really striking seemed like three quarters of a million people out there, extraordinary number, and then big marches elsewhere. Um, and that was very moving um, was how civilized it felt, how composed and gracious people seemed. There were lots of little kids and certainly many, many, many young people and many generations, and it was very diverse. Um, and people were all gracious with one another. It was like the world you, we want to live in. And the cops were all smiling. First of all, they don't really want us all to have guns. They have a certain perspective on that. But also, they were appreciating the civility of it. And how, you know... And at the same time, with that civility, there was a passion. It was very interesting because the young people who spoke and the, you know, and those who were on the big screens right in front of the Capitol building and so forth. I mean, there was this wonderful um, black gospel singer who did the times they are changing from Bob Dylan in a whole new way that I'd never heard. It was fabulous. But then here's a poem by Alison Luderman, an Oakland poet, one of my favorites. She writes, I see her on TV screaming into a microphone. Her head is shaved and she is beautiful and 17 and her high school was just shot up and she had to walk by friends lying in their own blood, her teacher bleeding out. And she's my daughter, the one I never had. And she's your daughter and everyone's daughter. And she's her own woman in the fullness of her young fire calling bullshit on politicians who take money from the gun makers. Tears rain down her face, but she doesn't stop speaking. She doesn't apologize. She keeps calling them out. All of them, all of us, who didn't do enough to stop this thing. And you can see the gray faces of those who've always held power contort, utterly baffled to face this new breed of young woman, not silky, not compliant, not caring if they call her a ten or a troll, and she cries, but she doesn't stop speaking truth into the microphone, though her voice is raw and shaking and the sun is molten brass. And I'm 3,000 miles away thinking how Neruda said, the blood of the children ran through the streets without fuss. Only now she is, they are raising a fuss, shouting down the walls of Jericho. And it's not that we road-weary elders have been given the all-clear exactly, but our shoulders do let down a little. We breathe from a deeper place. We say to each other, well, it looks like the baton may be passing to these next runners. And they are fleet as thought and fiery as stars. And we take another breath and say to each other, the baton has been passed. And we set off then running hard behind them. And it's hard to read it without weeping. And I love the end of it because it's not that they're doing it. 
that we are behind them also, and we have to be. And we have to hold the space so that those who are young and full of that passion and fire also can feel supported by us. So it's not separate. So the equanimity doesn't mean that one with a peaceful heart can't act in the world. But you can act in a very different way. That civility of those three quarters of a million people still had a courage and a strength in it. Now the equanimity practice that we did, which invited you to invoke or open to that quality of a peaceful heart, to rest at ease amidst the turning of all things, to be open and balanced and peaceful, had this little phrase at the end when you pictured another person that said, your happiness and suffering depend on your own heart, on your own thoughts and actions, and not my wishes for you. And this is a tough part of equanimity, but it's taught as a practice, as a balance for loving kindness and compassion practice. Because if you only do compassion and loving kindness, it can accidentally fall into kind of attachment. I need a certain result or I want you to change or to be a certain way. When you love someone or something, you know, and you want it to be a certain way, you can get really attached. You could call this also the response, the the ancient wise response to codependence in relationship. Because basically you can love people and care for them and support them but you can't love for them. You can't change for them. You can't let go for them. And so there's something in the moment where you see this loved one and you wish them to have a peaceful heart and then you say, I, may you have a peaceful heart, may you be filled with love, I care for you. And your happiness and suffering depend on your heart, your thoughts and actions and not my wishes for you. And I remember teaching this practice, I had the honor of leading a group Um, at Alice Walker's for about 10 years. It was a group for women of color, and they sort of adopted me somehow. I felt very fortunate like that. And um, I was nervous when I taught the first time because I thought that they might consider it to be a kind of cold um, Buddhist detachment thing, which it isn't. Um, It's really an invitation to liberation. But I taught it. Anyway, I said, so how was this? And they were smiling. And they said, and it was a group that was quite accomplished women, a professor at Berkeley or someone who ran the HIV AIDS project somewhere or, you know, Alice as a Pulitzer Prize winning author and so forth. They said, in our community, especially in the communities of people of color, when we're accomplished in some way, people want a lot from us. Come and, you know, help my nonprofit Um, write something for my book. I need money for my nephew or niece who's in trouble. We get this all the time. Um, And we do what we can. But at some point, we also need to be able to say, your happiness and suffering are in your hands and in your heart. We can love you. We can do what we can. But they depend on your own state of heart and mind, your own thoughts and actions and not our wishes for you. And it was actually quite liberating. Does that make sense to you? So it's not meant as a uncaring. It's meant as a 
disentanglement from the ideas we have for other people. <laughs> Just in case you have those kind of ideas about other people. You know? And we all live through the same enormous change of circumstances of gain and loss and pleasure and pain. And then you get that phone call, surprise, I think of this friend who is a hospice nurse, took care. And then she got the call from the doctor saying, you know, your biopsy doesn't look good. And she said, it was so different taking care of all those other people. But when I got the call, wait a second, it's, it's moi, as Miss Piggy would say, you know, it's different. It's me, such a surprise. Um, and she became, of course, you know, scared in some ways, but also tremendously tender. Oh yeah, this is what it's like to go through this. And of course we could complain. The world is unjust and we need to work for justice. And the world is, you know, still humanity. Well, what did Gandhi say when he's asked about Western civilization? It would be a good idea, right? Something like that. Um, But I remember the poetry um, in the book of Job, where Job is complaining, and he had a fair reason to complain, all those things that happened to him. But he, then there's this voice out of the whirlwind, which is really out of the, the whirlwind of creativity of life itself. Where were you when I clothed the sky, when I placed the suns in their orbits? Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? when I set the morning stars to sing together in the sky, when I set the sea with doors to hold it as it gushed forth out of the womb, when I swaddled the earth in clouds, do you know the seasons of the wild ass as she brings forth her young and the days the falcon learns to fly? And it's really a poem about mystery that we don't know so much, really. Um, There's something about creation itself that we are a part of, but it's not meant to be just figured out in our heads about how it's supposed to be. And instead, it becomes possible to meet it and to care for it um, with a peaceful heart, to live in that way. And that's the real miracle. Yes, stand up for justice. You know, yes, plant seeds, plant sequoias that, you know, take 2,000 years to grow. Yes, um, you know, make a conscious business and raise conscious children and beautiful children. Do all these things. Um, But how do we do it? We have a choice. And I remember the story of this couple who were unable to conceive and decided to adopt a child And then they decided, well, um, they would go where there were children that were either orphaned or really needed parents. So they went, in this case, they went to India and they found this young, very little child and adopted him and brought him back. And after a year or two, discovered that he had cerebral palsy and also that he was um, profoundly deaf. And so they started to take care of him physically, the cerebral palsy, and they started to teach him sign language as this person in front is doing so beautifully. 
And then they got really worried about their little boy, about how lonely he would be with cerebral palsy and being deaf. So they went back to India. You know, most of us would say, oh my God, I, I adopted this child and now look, this little boy is sick with cerebral palsy and he can't hear and he's deaf. You know, what a tragedy. They went back to India and they said, do you have any other kids with cerebral palsy who are deaf? Our boy needs friends. And they adopted a second child with the same difficulties or the same challenges, you might say. Say, oh, we got one, we need two of them, you know, to keep each other company. You will have difficulties. Anybody in this room have difficulties? Don't bother. That's all right. You will. You also have a good heart. You have all kinds of possibilities when you get quiet. And when you look, you can do magnificent things in the smallest way. And it plants incredible seeds in this world. Think about where in your life, you know, needs grace, needs letting go, needs a more spacious heart. And what it is that supports this in your life? You know, it could be reading a poem or sitting in meditation or taking a walk in the hills brings you back to a place of peace or your best friends who remind you, give you a bigger perspective or just taking a long hot bath, you know, listening to music. You know what brings your heart back to peace and gives you a big perspective. Human life is not without its sorrow. And yet in the midst of all, there is a reality of presence of consciousness itself that's open and vast and inviting. And it allows you to walk through this world with a peaceful heart, with understanding. You know all the wise people of the ages and people we care about and celebrate in some way. Yes, they may have done amazing things, but the wise ones also did it from a place of understanding, a place of graciousness, a peaceful heart. There's an interesting experience that happens to people sometimes in very wonderful or deep meditation sessions. Um, It's one of the dozen or 20 flavors of awakening or enlightenment that can happen. Maybe I'll talk about those flavors some night soon. It's the experience of perfection. And it's almost like I'm, I'm wary of saying it. I'm very careful of saying it. Because I don't mean the war in Syria is perfection. And I don't mean hungry children and starving people are perfection in the ordinary sense. And I think we have to do whatever we can to care for one another and to reach out and tend this world and to knit together the parts that have torn. Um, But there's another reality that's also true. And that is to see the mysterious perfection of it all. And then somehow there couldn't be birth without death. You know, and there couldn't be gain without loss, and there couldn't be night without day, and there couldn't be joy without sorrow and sweet without sour. 
it's actually how it's woven together. This is human, this is duality, it's human incarnation. And in this perspective, as the um, mystic Julian of Norwich wrote, she said, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. There was, it was the, a revelation that she had um, that was filled with love, really. It was filled with love for the whole world, for all its beauty and all its sorrows together, if that makes sense to you. And again, I want to be very careful in talking about it because it doesn't mean that one doesn't tend and care. But it's the invitation to rest in that which is sacred. And then every place you are is the Holy Land. You know? And every body is the body of the Buddha in different forms. When the Buddha was lying between the two sal trees, as the story is told, in his last day and surrounded by the villagers and monks and princes and nuns and all the people who were there, um, the very last thing attributed to him, he said, this world is impermanent. Make of yourself a light. Be a lamp, be a light in this ever-changing world. And that's the invitation of this practice of peace and well-being and love, that we carry that, that's who we are, actually, and it's possible for us. So let's sit for a moment quietly. And so, perhaps the point is not to let the fears and the terror and the confusion that's there out in the news and in the world, not let it colonize your heart, not let it take you over. The world actually needs people whose hearts are at peace and who can see with clarity and tended with the kind of beauty that is given to you and given to each of us. And if anything tonight resonated with you or reminded you, um, then that becomes something that you already had and that you can carry as you go. Thank you for coming. Drive politely out there. It's lots of cars and it's dark. Enjoy the spring evening and um, come again.